John chapter 16 will be our text this morning. Before we even read it, I try to make sure you all know when I'm giving my opinion versus when we're just hearing the Word of God. Now, sometimes I miss that. You know, some, sometimes I'll, I'll state something as if it were truth or something. It's really just what I think, and, and it's not necessarily backed up by Scripture. Part of the responsibility of knowing the difference is yours. Which is why I always say, have your Bibles open, have your Bibles out, double-check everything that, that I say. Don't assume that because Rick says it, it's truth. <laughs> My family doesn't. <laughs> And if you don't have a Bible, we've got them on the bookshelf in the back. Grab one, take it with you, hang on to it. But uh, every now and then I'll make a, a statement, and I think I can back it up, but sometimes it's misheard. Apparently on Wednesday night I made a controversial statement that left a few people wondering if we were supposed to pray for lost people or not. Let me clear this up. Yes. I never said don't pray for people who don't know Jesus. You know, we, we quoted Jeremiah 7.16 where the Lord tells Jeremiah, do not pray for this people because they are a people in rebellion. And what I was talking about, and I want to clear this up, is I was, I was making an allusion from what the Lord told Jeremiah to what Jesus is doing right now. The comment I made, and I'm going to stick to my guns on this one, is listen, Jesus does not pray for the world. Jesus does not pray for the world. Let me give you the context so you can see what I'm talking about. Skip over to John 17 and look at verse 9. Jesus is in the middle of his, what we call Wednesday, his high priestly prayer. We only got through about 11 verses of it Wednesday night. We'll hopefully finish it out this next week or the next couple, whatever the Lord desires. But Jesus says in verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. He says, listen, Holy Father, keep them in your name. I do not ask this on behalf of the world, Jesus says. I'm asking for those who are in your name, keep them in your name. They're the ones I am praying for. Now, he's asking the Father to keep them in his name. Who? His disciples. And so his prayer, at least, at least in John 17, his prayer is not for the world. Does that mean that Jesus does not pray for the world? Again, I'm going to stick with this. I don't think he does. Not in the way that some people might think. See, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 7.25, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. For who? Those who draw near. Those who draw near to God. Jesus ever lives. Now, just stay with me. No walking out. I'm not going to lock the doors. Will you guys in the back just for a minute? Jesus is making intercession right now in heaven for all of those who have been or have received the Lord, who have drawn near to God through Him. He even said, John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father but through Me. If you haven't gone to the Father through Jesus, the intercessory prayer of Jesus Christ right now is not for you. What about the lost? Doesn't He care? Has he written them all off? I hope not. I wouldn't be here if he did. 
Anyone who would count themselves among the saved would not be if he just wrote us off. So that's not it. And to the question, should we not pray for the lost? Listen, you pray until your last breath for every single person who does not know Jesus, unless, and this is the only caveat, unless the Lord very clearly says, stop praying like He told Jeremiah in that one instance. Otherwise, you pray and you pray and you pray and you cry out for those who don't know Jesus on behalf of those who don't know Jesus because guess what? Jesus is interceding for you. So as you pray, He is receiving your prayers for lost people, for those who don't know Christ, and He is translating that, and He is bringing that to the Father. And that is part of how it works. Understand again, God so loves the world. I want to write off the world. I will confess that. There are times I have had it. I'm done with it. I don't want to hear another story about Bruce Jenner. I really don't. I am fed up with that. I feel sorry for him, her, him, whatever. It just, dominating the headlines, I'm like, why are people so fascinated with this? It is twisted and it is wrong. And I don't want to hear about this. So, you know, in my flesh, I go, I'm just done. I'm going to go meet with my fellowship. We're going to worship the Lord. And if someone from outside comes in here... And that's the flesh. And that is a wrong attitude. And it is not the heart of the Father. You see, the heart of the Father loves this world, breaks for this world, desires for everyone to find salvation in and through Jesus Christ. But Jesus doesn't intercede for the world. Not like He does for those the Father has given to Him. You know, prayers that go up from people who don't believe in Jesus, right now, honestly, like radio waves. Right now, there are radio waves all over the place, out in outer space, floating around, going everywhere. And there are an awful lot of prayers. You know the ones I'm talking about, God, get me out of this one, prayers, that aren't going anywhere. Unless you go through the Son to the Father. But it begs this question, if Jesus is currently focused on interceding for His people in heaven, how does He intend to reach the lost in this age? John chapter 16, verse 7. Let's get into this this morning. Jesus still teaching. We've been looking at the paraclete promises of Jesus. We've seen three. Number four this morning, number five next week. There's not enough time to cover them both. I tell you the truth, he says in verse 7, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the parakletos, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now stop right there. That's good news. That's great news for the church, for the body, for the fellowship, for all of us. He's coming, and He's going to be with us, and He's our strong advocate, and He's our sure rememberer, and He's our saving witness, and He's going to work in us, and upon us, and through us. Fantastic. But then, listen to this, verse 8. And He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Spirit of God 
Now Jesus, talking about the parakletos, the strong advocate, dealing with the world. Father, help us to understand what this means. Give us insight, Father, to take this in and to rely on it and to trust in You for it and to believe You this morning and to know more of how You work. And Father, help us as You come alongside this world to convict. Help us to come alongside this world in the name of Jesus. And it's in Jesus we pray this morning. Amen. The first time we see the Spirit of the Lord, we've already mentioned this verse, it's in Genesis chapter 1. Go back there in your Bibles, all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. So important because the first time we actually see the Spirit of the Lord, He is deployed to a world in disarray. Watch this. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. That phrase, formless and void, is an interesting phrase. It's kind of a fun phrase to say in the Hebrew. It's tohu vabohu. (laughs) Formless and void. If I had known this in high school, I would have used it all the time. Dude, that is totally tohu vabohu. (laughs) Or tohu vabogus, you know. That is formless and void. That is messed up. That's what the phrase means. It means a waste place. An absolute waste. A, A mess. The earth was a waste place. Now, it says the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. That word in the Hebrew is rachaf. And rachaf means the quick, non-linear flying motion of something. Indicating a caring superintendence over a surface. So really the the translation of rachaf is given by the picture of the Holy Spirit moving over the surface of this messed up world. Now this is just my opinion. Opinion, opinion, opinion. I can't prove it, I wasn't there, but it seems to me something went wrong between verse 1 and verse 2. Now there are different theological and scholarly opinions, far more trained scholars than I have different opinions on this, but it seems to me when I read verse 1 and then I read verse 2, creation became chaos. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was tohu vabohu, and the earth was a waste. Now, Isaiah comes along in Isaiah 45.18 and says, Thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it. Tohu vabohu. Isaiah the prophet says he didn't create the earth a waste place. He didn't create the earth formless and void, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no one else. See the problem? Isaiah tells us, gives us insight, thousands of years after creation, looking back, says, the Lord did not create the earth in Hebrew, tohu vabohu. But verse 2 of Genesis says, the earth was, or that Hebrew word was, can also be translated, became formless and void, tohu vabohu. 
So if God did not create the earth a waste place, but the earth became a waste place, or was a waste place, something happened to mess it up. You see what I'm saying? Now, I'm not here to prove this either way. But back in the days of yore, when I was a child, a box of wooden blocks could could satisfy a kid for hours. These were in the days before screens. The days before kids saying, is it 5 o'clock yet? See, we have a rule in our house in the summertime, no screens before 5 p.m. We have no screen time at home. you got to figure out something to do. And usually for about the first hour, Naomi and David just stand there looking at each other. <laughs> and then they find something and they're, it's great. When I was a kid, a box of blocks, I remember spending hours on our entryway wooden floor building stuff. Building fortresses and and forts to knock down. And I recall building, I was a master builder, mind you, and I would build these things up, but sometimes they got precarious and the blocks began to fall and then I would move over the surface of the entryway considering this fallen mess and thinking about how to go about rebuilding it. My opinion. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 was creation and it's possible that Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 describes renovation. The recreation of the earth. Now you can think that through and chew on it and debate it with me and that's fine. Something to think about. But this is what I can tell you with absolute certainty. The first mention of the Spirit of the Lord in Scripture shows us, shows Him moving alongside a mess. And that should tell us something about the Spirit of the Lord. Principle of first mention. Anytime you want to understand something in Scripture, go to the first time it's talked about, and you will be amazed at how much information you get just from that. This is the first time we see the Spirit of the Lord, and He is moving alongside Tohu Vabohu, a waste place, a messed up place. Why? I think it's because that's what He does. He moves alongside a mess. The second time we see the Spirit of the Lord, skip ahead to Genesis chapter 6. Second time he's even mentioned. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. What's the striving about? Look down at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The first two snapshots we see of the Spirit perfectly parallel this idea of the parakletos, that is one who comes alongside. The Spirit of the Lord had been, from creation forward, alongside mankind. And He said, you know what? I'm not going to do this continually. I'm, I'm tired of this. The wickedness, the evil intent of mankind, it's out of control. I've got to do something to change the situation here. What I'm saying is this, the Holy Spirit, who who we've been talking about and understanding and seeking to know better over the last couple of weeks, He seems to come alongside when things get messy. And not just for believers. He comes alongside the messes of this world. Now let me refresh your memories. A couple of weeks ago we limited ourselves to the Gospel of John to understand, to gain a mini-theology of the Lord's Spirit. Here's what we learned. Jesus, number one, is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1 tells us. 
We learn that we must be born of the Spirit, John chapter 3, if we're going to enter the kingdom at all. We learned in John chapter 4 that God is Spirit, who we must worship in Spirit and in truth. If we're going to worship Him, we got to worship Him in Spirit. We learned also in verse uh, chapter 6 of John, the fourth thing, Jesus words our spirit and life. If His words are spirit, what does that tell us about the Spirit? It tells us what the rest of the New Testament tells us in numerous places. He is the Spirit of Christ. The words coming out. We see this in John 20. When we get there, Jesus will breathe on the apostles and say, Receive my Spirit. And that gets interesting. I'll hold off on that one. Then we learn that the way to receive the Spirit, that is alongside us and in us, and upon us, is by believing in Jesus. And and it's a, a nice little theology there, just out of the Gospel of John. Not even going anywhere else in Scripture. And then we arrive at John 14, 15, and 16, and learn more about the Holy Spirit than in any other location in the Bible. And again, the word that Jesus chooses to describe Him is parakletos. Helper, strengthener, advocate, one who comes alongside to help. He's the strong advocate of John 14, verses 16 through 20. As in our attorney for the defense. He is the sure rememberer, John 14, verses 26 and 27. I compared him to a court stenographer who keeps track of everything and brings to remembrance all that Jesus has spoken. He's the saving witness, John 15, verses 26 and 27, in that he testifies of Jesus and he empowers me. He comes upon me to testify of Jesus as well. We learned that the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord would abide in us as well as come upon us in the court of the world, bringing that double portion of peace? Is this ringing a bell? Are you familiar with what I'm sharing right now? Just nod slowly or go back to sleep. Whatever works for you. (laughs) And so the dynamic of the Holy Spirit in our lives is phenomenal, and I think sometimes quenched or maybe sidelined by believers because we don't fully understand. Read the Word. Look at what God tells us. Open your heart and say, yes, I want that. Not because my pastor tells me or because my church tradition tells me. I want that because God's Word tells me. And because the Lord promises this to me. The promises of the parakletos. I want that, Lord. But most of what we've talked about thus far, and usually what we think about regarding the Holy Spirit, is we think about believers. That the Spirit comes upon the believer. But here suddenly... Jesus starts to talk about how His Spirit will function and work in the world for the sake of the world. The work of the parakletos, the work of the Holy Spirit of the living God in the world among those who are lost. Verse 7, go back and look again. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send Him to you. And the advantage is both internal and external. Jesus says, if I go away, I'm going to send Him to you. Internal intimacy. A closeness that we can have with God through the Spirit, closer than the apostles could have walking with Jesus. Do you get that? Because He's in me now. 
He is readily available to me. At the drop of a hat, I I need you, He's there. (laughs) Think about when the apostles were out doing their mission, and something got a little wonky. And Peter's looking around going, "Oh, oh, we need Jesus to answer this. Well, Jesus is over in Bethsaida right now. Oh, man. Okay, well, we'll figure this out. We'll get back to you. Now, the Spirit is here, intimate, in me, with me, constantly. And the advantage is also external, that is, external testimony. If I go away, I'm going to give them to you internally and externally. You're going to have personal peace. You're going to be worldwide witnesses beyond what Jesus, limited by the flesh, could possibly accomplish on earth. I'm going to go away, and it is to your advantage. And then he says, verse 8, And he, when he comes, note that he, not it, not the force when it arrives, and he, when he comes, will convict the world Stop right there. When he comes, he will convict the world. When he comes, okay, when was that? And i got to pause and point this out because one commentator that I have great respect for I think missed it on this because he said what Jesus is talking about here concerning sin and righteousness and judgment is the cross. He's talking about what's going to happen right there, right then. And I see him saying when he comes he will do these things. I don't think he's talking about the immediacy of the cross. I think he's talking about 50 days later at Shavuot, that is Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, when the Holy Spirit arrived on the scene. When he comes, he's going to do this, these things. And you know the Spirit showed up at Pentecost. Not only in the apostles, he was already in them. I'll show you that later. But now he shows up upon them in the fledgling church. Lock, stock, and barrel, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. And as the church grew, the Spirit spread out. And as the church continued to move out of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth, the Holy Spirit of, of Jesus was out, moving in and among believers. Fantastic. But there's more. Because at that time, the Spirit came alongside the world. My strong advocate... My sure rememberer, the saving witness, paraclete promise number four, the straight up judge. The straight up judge. If you're keeping track of these, the Spirit of the Lord is the straight up judge. John 8.50, Jesus said, I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Two things you can know about the Holy Spirit right there. He seeks the glory of Jesus. So where He is, Jesus will be glorified. Where He is, Jesus will be honored and lifted up. He seeks the glory of Jesus. He also judges the Spirit of the living God. He testifies of the glory of Christ, but He seeks and judges to bring conviction. He, when He comes, will convict the world. This world is no fan of conviction. Nobody wants their dirty laundry aired out to dry. Nobody wants to be called to the carpet. But the world needs conviction desperately. Because understood rightly, conviction is direction. Conviction is guidance. You could even call conviction alongsideness. 
That when the Spirit comes alongside the world and brings that sense of conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment, we'll get to that in a second, understand He's coming alongside to direct people toward Christ. That's a good thing. But conviction doesn't always feel good. The Greek word for convict is elenko. And elenko means to call to account. You parents have done that with your kids. Did you take the cookie or not? Did you look at me? Look at me. Why don't they look? Because they don't want to be convicted. They know the second they lock eyes with mom the judge, they're busted. <laughs> to convict, to call to account, to expose, but not just to expose and walk away. Ha <laughs> ha, busted! I'm out of here. No. Why does a parent expose a child's sin so that the child will recognize it for what it is? So a child will see the ugliness of it and go, Ugh, I guess I don't want that. To expose for the purpose of convincing of fault. That's what the word means. And here comes the Holy Spirit calling us to account. This is conviction. Listen, this is conviction, not condemnation. They are not the same thing. It's exposing sin for the purpose of convincing a person of their need for grace, their need for forgiveness, and when they recognize the need, the grace is there. Isn't that marvelous? And the Lord works this way in the world to convict so that people will see where they're at and go, I need a Savior. Great, here I am. Jesus would say. You know, the Father already knows what's going on. He's not trying to dredge up evidence for the trial like like He needs to see the evidence laid out so He can decide whether or not to condemn. No, He knows what we've done. He knows what's going on in the world. He doesn't send His Spirit to convict so that He can go... Ah, okay, I didn't see that one. Yeah. No. He sends the world, the Spirit to the world to convict so that the world will see. So that we will recognize. We need to see the evidence. Jesus, so He sends another helper. Allos Parakletos. That helper, the Spirit, that is the same kind as Himself. That's what Allos means again. Same kind as Himself into the world. And so that being the case, now think about this, if Jesus sends Allos Parakletos, the Spirit that is one and the same with His Spirit, then to understand how the Spirit convicts, all we have to do is look at how Jesus convicted. Does that make sense? So if we look at Jesus, and we can see, okay, here's how He convicts, we can understand that's how the Spirit works as well, because He's Allos Parakletos, He is another of the same Spirit. He's going to do the same thing Jesus did. Okay, what does that look like? Turn back to John chapter 8. Let's look at a few examples here, uh, primarily from John. A few examples of the way Jesus convicted. It's funny to me when people say, I don't like church and I don't like those Christians and I don't like God of the Old Testament. I, I like that Jesus. He's cool. You must have missed a few things in terms of conviction because He brought it. Jesus could be the straight up judge when He needed to be. And in John chapter 8, the religious pride of the Jewish leaders is on trial. They're arguing with Jesus. They're going after Jesus. They're right. He's wrong. That's the end of the story as far as they're concerned. And Jesus says in verse 39, kind of picking up in the middle of this conversation, they say, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, 
If you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Conviction! Verse 40. But as it is, you still, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. And Jesus goes further. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we are not born of fornication, which is an an accusation, I think, against Jesus' birth. We have one Father, God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, and I have not come on my own initiative, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your Father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your Father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in Him. Whenever He speaks a lie, He speaks from His own nature. He's a liar and the Father of lies. I speak the truth and you do not believe me. Conviction! Would you have liked to have been on the receiving end of that conversation? Jesus, He's not trying to upset them. He's trying to shake them out of their pharisaical tradition long enough to hear the truth. To see the truth, to understand the truth. But you might remember this was after a prior scene of harsh hypocrisy. As the scribes and Pharisees earlier in this same chapter threw down a woman that they had caught in the act of adultery. Well, how did they catch her? That remains a matter of guessing. But they throw her down in front of Jesus. And I love this. I won't do the whole story, but look in verse 7 of John 8. And it says, When they persisted in asking Him, asking Him what? Asking Him basically, condemn her or set her free. What what do you say we do? Trying to catch Him. He straightened up and said to them, He who who is without sin among you, let him be the first to stone her. And again, he stooped down, he wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone with the woman where she was in the center of the court. Conviction! They were convicted where they stood. And oldest to youngest, they departed because they knew they had no right to stone her. They were all of a similar sin. So he exposes their unclean hands in the matter, convicts them of their sin. By the way, note what he says to this woman. She doesn't get off scot-free. Verse 11, he turns to her and says, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Stop sinning. Conviction. Now, it's two different kinds of conviction back to back. One is pretty heavy. Pretty heavy-handed. The Pharisees needed to get it. So he lays it out to them and they depart in shame. He lays it out to this woman. I don't condemn you. You are free. You are washed. You're clean of your sin. Don't do it anymore. And with gentleness and love, he convicts the woman as well. And then there was that quiet, well-side conversation back in John chapter 4. With a woman from Samaria. Talk about an outsider. And you would think, okay, you're talking to an outsider whose life is messy who's a loner there at the well. And in verse 15, the woman said to Jesus, Sir, John 4, 15, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, and I can't believe he said it, but he did. Go call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered and said, I have no husband. It's cookie jar stuff right there. I have no husband. You know, hopefully he's not going to pick up on the nuance that I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, woman, uh, he says, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Conviction. And what's interesting is down in verse 25, the woman said, I know Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, first time he says this to anyone, I who speak with you am he. She's the first one he tells that he is the Messiah. Amazing. That's conviction at work. We see him challenging Nick at night. You know, when he says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? John 3, verse 10. He tells the lame man walking, do not sin anymore so nothing worse will happen to you. John 5, 14. Conviction, conviction, and to Peter. (laughs) To Peter in Matthew 16, 23, after Peter's grand and glorious confession, and then after Peter decides it's not wise for Jesus to go to Jerusalem and get killed, And he pronounces this to the Lord. Never will we let this happen to you. Jesus turns around, looks Peter in the eye and says, Get behind me, Satan. Matthew 16, 23. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's conviction. You see, it it doesn't matter if it's religious pride. It doesn't matter if it's harsh hypocrisy or blatant rebellion or, or even deceived folly. Each of these situations are unique. And in each one, Jesus brings conviction, exposes the sin so that the person can be freed from it. But before anyone, and you know this, before anyone can really truly come to the Lord, we've got to come under conviction. We've got to recognize that we need Him. That we see a need for Jesus, because also in every single situation I just recounted to you, Jesus is the answer to their situation. Jesus Himself is what each of these people needed to know. The Spirit now does, now in our world, does exactly what Jesus did then, which is why He said, it's to your advantage that I go away. For He says back in John 16 now, He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. What does that mean? The next three verses breaks it down for us. Verse 9. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Okay, so number one, He convicts concerning sin. Listen to this. He doesn't say the Helper will convict the world concerning sins. That's what the old serpent does. Right? He guilt trips us with all our sins. That's what the snake does. That's what the devil's all about. He tries to pile on to remind you of every possible thing you could maybe have done wrong. To dump and to dump to the point where someone says, "Ah, I just can't do anything different here. 
That is not what the Spirit of the Lord does. Notice He convicts the world concerning sin. And in in the Greek it is in the singular. One sin. What sin? Unbelief. The sin of unbelief. Well, how do you know that? Because Jesus immediately says, He convicts the world concerning sin because they do not believe in Me. There is one major overriding, overarching sin, one turning away, one denial, and that is unbelief. And it drives all the others. It's not sexual sin. It's not drunkenness or murder or theft or hatefulness or spite or brutality or disobedience to parents. Those are all sins. But my friends, they are all just symptoms of the main issue, which is unbelief. In my life, the greatest seasons of sin have also coincidentally been seasons of massive unbelief. When I am not believing in God, when I am not trusting in the Lord, sin starts to pile up. Sin's plural. Because of the one sin, the sin of unbelief. What did Jesus say was the one unforgivable sin? Do you remember? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Saying the Holy Spirit is not God. Rejecting the Spirit of the Lord, which is one and the same with rejecting Jesus because the Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit of Christ. So you reject the Holy Spirit. It's an unforgivable sin because there's no, there's no way to be forgiven unless you believe. The sin of unbelief because they do not believe in me, Jesus said. So the Spirit's going to come alongside the world and start convicting of that. Bringing that picture of Jesus to mind, trying to draw the world into that. Brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow believers, that's how we need to work. The Spirit in us convicting the world, not of all the things they're doing wrong. If I were to sit down with Bruce Jenner, sorry to bring him up again, but if I was to sit down with him, the answer would not be talking about all of his sins and and issues and disgusting blah, blah, blah. The answer would be Jesus. The first point of discussion. Can I talk to you about Jesus? Because what's remarkable is when we fall in love with Jesus, all the sins start to get really gross. We don't want them. We're not interested in them. We'd rather be with Him. And so it's the sin of unbelief here. And and the Holy Spirit convicts of that. Jesus in John 3.18 says, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Do you realize that that is why the atheist is so uncomfortable with the Pledge of Allegiance? The Pledge of Allegiance does not recount any singular sin, any number of sins in it at all. The Pledge of Allegiance just says one nation under God. And the atheist finds that offensive Worldly pride, my friends, is no different than religious pride. It's all pride. But an atheist would hear that and say, Don't tell me I'm under God. Don't tell me I need Jesus. I'm fine on my own. Have you heard about the church, the United Church of Bacon? There is one. In Las Vegas. I know, surprise, surprise. In Las Vegas... The United Church of Bacon. It was founded in 2010, and worldwide right now it has over 10,000 members. The United Church of Bacon. 
The founder said, we believe in bacon because bacon is real. I'm like, what a way to end up fried, you know? No, you know what? You believe in bacon because you don't have to answer to bacon. Bacon's not going to convict you. Bacon's just going to sit there and sizzle. And then crunch. That's all it does. The United Church of Bacon. I was shocked. But that mindset says, I don't, don't tell me about God. Don't talk to me about God. I, I've said this before. You all, I think there's quite a bit of agreement on this. If you don't believe in God, why do you fight against God? If you don't believe in God, why are you offended by the mention of God? The reality is you're convicted. And you're not being convicted of sin, sins. You're being convicted of one sin, the sin of unbelief. And it's uncomfortable. And the truth is, Hebrews 4.13, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You can eat all the bacon you want. But the sin of unbelief is the one that keeps all the rest of the sins in the book, in the case file. You see, there's a file that just gets filled with all the things we've done. The Bible calls it the book of deeds. Revelation 20, verse 12. John said, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. But the dead were judged from the things written in the books according to their deeds. The books of deeds. Lots of books because there are lots of deeds, lots of sins, lots of things. You can deny Jesus all you want. You can believe in bacon and eggs, bacon burgers, BLTs, Kevin Bacon. You can believe in anything you want. But it's all clogged arteries and hard hearts. Right? And a meticulous judgment of every single one of your deeds, all your sins in plurality. Why not just get rid of the one sin? The sin of unbelief. Dump that one, and all the rest will begin to fall, one after another, like bacon burned in the pan. Why not just do that? The Spirit does not convict, listen, the Spirit does not convict of the sin of unbelief to throw the book at you, but to throw the book away. So that the person convicted of the sin of unbelief then begins to believe in Jesus and he says, okay, all the sins, plural, gone. Those books no longer apply. Just one book applies to you, the Lamb's Book of Life. You believe in Jesus, your name is written in that book, the Lord looks first there. Oh, Rick, I see you're here. Come on in. Done. And all those deeds, all those nasty, stinky, lame, greasy things that I used to do. Gone. Never even looked at. As far as the East is from the West. So far has He removed my sin from me. Isaiah 43.25, God says, I, even I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. When? When we believe in Jesus whom He has sent. The Spirit convicts of unbelief by testifying about Jesus. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brethren. 
that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that not one of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And I was kidding, but I was serious when I said belief in bacon just gives you a hard heart. Because spiritually speaking, belief in things that cannot save you, just harden your heart to the one thing, the one person who can, and that is our Lord Jesus. But He says, I'm going to send the Spirit to your advantage, and He's going to convict the world concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Verse 10. Right? Verse 10. Yes. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see Me. What do you mean by that, Lord? You're going to convict the world concerning righteousness because you go to the Father. What does that mean? Well, how does one go to the Father? How how do you get there is the question. Psalm 24 verse 3 says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully and by my reckoning outside of Jesus, that counts us all out. He's the only one who has absolutely clean hands, a pure heart, has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. In other words, only the righteous can ascend. Only the righteous can approach the Father, can can go up question here, and again, I'm not talking to you, I mean, I know you're saved people, but I'm not talking to Christians. I'm asking this question, in and of yourself, without Jesus, by yourself, who is so right, so pure, that death can't hold you? Show of hands. Not one? Not one of you are good enough that you can pop out of the grave? Jesus was. And the Spirit will convict the world. First concerning sin. First you've got to get past that one. You've got to get to belief. But once a person begins to believe, guess what the very next thing is? He's going to convict concerning righteousness. You begin to believe in Jesus. You begin to look at Jesus and realize the fact that Jesus went to the Father. That proves He's righteous. It proves He's righteous. Nobody can do that unless you're righteous in and of yourself. And He is and He was Jesus said to Mary in John chapter 20, we're going to get there in a few weeks here, but Jesus said to Mary, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God, because that's what happens to someone who's righteous, pure, perfect, spotless, and holy. They ascend. They just go up. You cannot hold a righteous man down. And when Jesus says He's going to convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, His ascension is the proof of His righteousness. His resurrection shows us, gives us that amazing reality. Because for us, if you have one blemish, one spot, one tiny little flake of spiritual toe jam, one little bit of bacon stuck in your teeth, you got one problem. Guess what? You ain't going nowhere. Only Jesus can take you there. Jude 24, only He is able to make you stand in the presence of God, in glory, blameless, with great joy. Only Jesus can do that. 
Which, by the way, that's why Paul wrote, Romans 10.8, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. He just said what Jesus said. If you're convicted concerning sin, and become believing in Him, and then you're convicted concerning righteousness because He goes to the Father, you believe that He did go to the Father, He resurrected, you'll be saved. The resurrection proves the righteousness of the one who ascended. So Jesus says the Spirit's going to do that. Not only is He going to bring you to belief, but He's going to bring you to belief in my resurrection, in my ascension. You're going to realize my righteousness as borne out in my ascension. And then we get to verse 11. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I love that. He's going to convict you concerning what you believe and what you begin to believe concerning this issue of righteousness. And once that's dealt with, he's going to convict the world of judgment. The judgment of the ruler of this world, Satan, is the judgment that will fall on the whole world of those who choose not to believe. So you want to know how it's going to turn out if you reject Jesus and choose bacon? Sorry, I should just let that alone, but I can't. I just can't. John writes in Revelation 20, verse 10, exactly what the judgment of Satan looks like. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He's been judged. This is not a verdict that will change. There's not going to be a spontaneous uh, awakening on the part of Satan. It is a done deal. God has seen it. He has foreseen it. He tells us about it. That's the judgment of Satan. That judgment will fall. The sentence is read. It's entered into the books. Well, when was Satan's judgment finalized? At the cross. At the cross of Jesus. When Jesus said, It is finished bowed his head, lifted up his spirit. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same. In other words, the Word became flesh, like you and me. That through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He's going to convict the world concerning judgment. People don't like to talk about judgment. People are uncomfortable thinking about judgment. Well, of course you would be if you're on death row. And I was. You were. Before the sin of unbelief was replaced by the glory of belief. The usurper of this world who dominates and enslaves humanity. And by the way, if someone throws up the argument, you've heard it before, well, if there's a God, how come there's so much pain and anguish in the world? Because there's a devil? Because Satan is hard at work? Stealing, killing, and destroying. That's what he does. If you're seeing theft, it's the devil at work. If you're seeing destruction, the devil's behind it. If you see death, that's all his stuff. It's what He does. But He has been judged. And the sin, our sin, gave Him the power to do what He did and what He does. It's the sin of man that allows Satan to function at all. 
Believers, do you hear that? That it's my sin who gives Him access to my life? It's my sin choices that allows the devil to begin to whisper and discourage and accuse? I turn my heart to Jesus. I'm free from that. Through the cross, the, the power of the devil, no longer does he have any power over me. That is conviction. He was dealt a death blow. An eternal life sentence at the cross of Calvary. And if the ruler of the world stands judged, that means he no longer has any power over you. You are not bound to do what you did before. Struggling with alcoholism? Guess what? In Jesus, you are not bound to that anymore. Have a problem with truth? Find yourself lying all the time? Guess what? In Jesus, you don't do that anymore. You don't have to. You are not bound to it. Why do Christians continue to do some of these things? Because we don't know that we're not bound. We think we still are. He was disarmed at the cross. The powers, the the authorities in the dark places, gang, were disarmed. Arms cut off. What can an armless man do to you? Bleed on you? Colossians 2.15 When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. We are a triumphant people. Not a people of unbelief. Right? But a people made righteous by Jesus so that the judgment is when he calls we will rise. Because the sin that once had mastery over me no longer does. Listen, the helper does this. This is the work of the Spirit of the Lord. He did not come alongside the world to convict people so they might continue to wallow in guilt. He came alongside, comes alongside the world so that we would walk in freedom. That's the message of the Gospel. Jesus Christ has set you free. It was for freedom that Christ set you free, Galatians 5.1. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And maybe that's something we could tell each other from time to time in Christ. Brothers and sisters, hey, dude, you're free. Don't forget you're free in Christ. Not free to sin and free to wallow and free to mess it up more. Free to live holy. Free to be righteous. Free in joy to follow after Jesus. For, listen... The Holy Spirit who does all this convicting. 2 Corinthians 3.17 For the Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is. If the Spirit of the Lord is in you, and upon you, believers in Jesus, you're free. Because He can't be somewhere and there not be freedom. And that's the message we have to this world. You want to get freed up from this stuff? Or do you want to continue to walk in it? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's how the Spirit of the truth comes alongside the world. That's how Jesus, while interceding for the saints in heaven, He still continues to work in and among the lost of the world. He's still searching and seeking. He's still convicting, but that's the primary function of the Spirit of Jesus now is the conviction of those who are lost. And the second someone is convicted, the moment belief enters the heart, He's praying for you. He's praying for you in the heavenly places. The Spirit of Christ, the prayers of Christ, 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit working in concert for believers and for non-believers alike that people would be saved for what reason, Bible students? To glorify God. Thank you, Glenn. You are listening. (laughs) And we talked about this Wednesday night again, that the whole point is the glory of God. And that all of this bring glory to His name. And you know, it's interesting to me, this is how it all began. The the Spirit moving over the waters of a formless, void, wasted world. And He's still doing it. The Holy Spirit of the living God is still moving over the sea of humanity. And He's doing so among messed up, wasted, washed out, tohu-va-bohu defendants. The Spirit is here. And the Spirit is at work. Does your life seem a waste? Does it seem void of meaning and formless in terms of direction? Jesus came to set you free of all of that. Do not let your heart be troubled, Jesus said. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let's stand up together. Before we sing this song, a final word specifically to you believers. If you are not a believer in Jesus, if you find yourself in that place of unbelief, man, let us pray for you, would you? They come forward this morning while we sing this song. There will be people here to receive you. Not people holy and righteous in and of themselves, but people made righteous because Jesus loves them as much as He loves you. So if you would believe in Jesus for the first time today, come forward. And accept Him as your Lord. But let me say this to everyone else, to those of you who do believe in Jesus. I think we need to learn, I need to learn how to take the lead from my straight up judge. I need to understand a little more about what conviction looks like in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Convicting people of sin, that is just one sin. The sin of unbelief in Jesus. That we go about this world telling people about Jesus, not pointing out all the many sins. Because pointing out all the many sins is not conviction, it's just guilt. So we convict by bringing the truth of Jesus to people. That's how the Spirit works. Convincing of righteousness. In other words, letting people know, look, only one was right. And that's not me. That's not my church and it's not my tradition. That's not what's right. What's right is Jesus. That's how the Holy Spirit convicts. So we can do the same. Cautioning people of judgment. And that caution, gang, is not just focusing on the sinner's judgment. It is the judgment of the ruler of the world. It's telling people, listen, Jesus loves you. Jesus is righteous. And the the devil has already been judged. He's out of here. Not long from now. He doesn't have the kind of sway and control that you might think. He's been disarmed. He has no power over you. That is a great message. And I believe that we, filled with the Holy Spirit and overcome by the Holy Spirit, that is the message of the Gospel of Jesus. And that's how we come alongside the Spirit, coming alongside the world to convict. It's a good conviction. Gang, Jesus hasn't given up on the world, and neither should we. Jesus said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I read that and decided, okay, then we'll wait till next week for the rest of this. (laughs) 
So Lord willing, we'll come back next week and we will deal with the, with the fifth paraclete promise. But let's sit in this one right now and let's pray for the Lord to show us how to be used of Him to bring conviction and therefore salvation to a lost world. Let's sing with Rachel. If you would come forward, please do it.